Use the tethered mic over here as backup. Now, today is the first Sunday of the new year. So how many of you have already set your New Year's resolutions? How many of you have already got your resolution going? You're like, okay, this year I'm going to do this diet, or this year I'm going to you know, restore this relationship, or I'm going to do et cetera, et cetera. I'm finally going to do the list of things my wife's been asking me to do for the last three years. Like, we all have resolutions, or you know, these are my anti-resolutions this year. I'm not going to do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I always, when I get to New Year, I always look back at... Uh, guy named Jonathan Edwards, um, uh, 16th, I'm sorry, the 18th century, he uh, had his list of resolutions, and his first resolution was, I resolve to serve God. And his second re- resolution was, if nobody else does, I still will. And I think for me, when I get to the new year, that's the thing that I always go back to is, make a thousand resolutions and not keep any of them, be done with them by February, or I can just say, this year I'm just going to serve God. If nobody else does, I still am. This year I'm going to serve God. So for me personally and for this church, that's our resolution is we're going to follow God. If we're together and we've got a whole bunch of people with us, great. If we're alone, fine. But we're going to serve God. Now, this being 2020, we've probably already seen the Facebook posts about every church, their vision plan or their sermon series is all about 2020 vision, right? Uh, 2020, 2020 vision, ours is going to be a little bit different. Um, I just uh, feel like this year, you know, this past year, nine months, we've seen 31 people saved. We've seen 28 people baptized. That's pretty awesome in a nine-month period. I'm just believing that God's going to do better this year. He's going to do exceedingly abundantly above that. So this year, and I put it in the bulletin, I think, um, our prayer and fasting month is going to be for this to be a year of the harvest. I want to see 100 people saved, 60 people baptized, and 30 people introduced into ministry. And yeah, that's ambitious, but I think God can do it. Nothing's impossible with God. So when you're praying and fasting, your various fasts, your various prayers, your time alone with God, if you want something solid to cling to that everybody can agree together, we want to see 100 people saved and 60 people baptized this year and 30 people introduced to ministry. Amen? Amen. All right. So that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to be talking about today. (laughs) We are going to be talking about heaven. You know, you guys know me. I'm usually preaching about hell (laughs) or preaching about missions or preaching about evangelism or talking about the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. But today I just felt in my heart that I wanted to talk to you guys about heaven. Is that okay? Can we just talk about the goodness of God? Can we just talk about the glory of heaven? Can we just talk about the hope that we have? All right, we're going to be in Revelation 21. We're going to do a little bit of reading. You guys will just bear with me. Um, The ESV Bible is what I'm going to be reading out of. We're going to start in verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. That should be a praise point right there. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Praise the Lord. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Praise God. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty will I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We're going to skip down to verse 18. The wall was built of pure jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was like pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for the, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Praise God. That is awesome. The fact that we... You guys may not know this, but in the Hosea in the Old Testament, God gives a specific prophecy through Hosea, and He has Hosea go out and marry a false, or a, a harlot, a prostitute, and then they have a child, and He says, name that child Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And He says, because these are not my people anymore, and I am not their God. That's pretty distinct, but here in Revelation, when it's all said and done, He says, you are my people, and I am your God. So it's a complete reversal of the judgment that happened before, all through the substitution of Christ. And then it goes on, and it just gets better and better as it keeps going. There's no more tears. There's no more pain. There's no more crying. There's no more mourning. There's no more sickness. There's no more broken relationships. There's no more recovery because everyone's whole and healthy and happy and joyous and everybody has good conversation. There's no backbiting and stabbing and slandering and hurting and there's no mourning for people that you've lost because they'll be there with you. There's no mourning for people that you might lose because no death is there. It's just a wonderful, wonderful place. And then it gets down and it goes even further and it starts talking about the description of the city. And this is where I really want to focus. He says several things. He uses stones, um, probably symbolic of the high priest chest plate where the stone each representing the 12 tribes of Israel was. But that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is he said gold like transparent glass. Have you ever seen gold that's transparent? No, you can't see through gold. The point that's being made here is he's using symbolism. Now, is it as valuable as gold? infinitely more so. Is it as beautiful as all these gems and stones that he says? Have you ever seen a pearl that forms a pillar of a gate? No, it's a small little round thing, but he says each one of those is a single pearl. It's symbolism. And the point of a symbol 
is a symbol is never as powerful or as valuable or as emphatic as the object that it represents. For example, throughout the Bible it says God's glory is like the sun shining in its strength. Now we've all been out, especially down here on the Gulf where it's ridiculously hot, and you've seen the sun shining down and you don't even want to be outside because it's so bright and it's so hot. That has nothing in comparison to the glory of God. But that's the strongest source of light that the writers had to compare it to. So the symbol of the sun shining in its strength, while it is powerful and while it is awesome and while it is strong, is nothing. It's less than the object that it's representing. So when he says the gold is clear as glass, what he's saying is, is this is what it was like to me, but the object that I'm describing is infinitely more valuable and infinitely more beautiful than this that I'm telling you. Because it's a symbol of something that human words can't express. Let me give you an example. I can take an object, I can take something, and I can describe it to you. I can explain it to you. I can compare it with other things and say that it's like this. I can even contrast it and say, well, it's nothing like this. But until you experience it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. An example, honey. Honey is a common theme throughout the Word of God. Has everybody here tasted honey? Surely. I can tell you, honey is thick that it's sharp, it's sweet. I can tell you that it's rich and that it's smooth and it's delicious. I can tell you that it's kind of like thick maple syrup, but different in a way. I can tell you that it's thicker than water. I can tell you that it's nothing like a rock. But until you take honey in a spoon and you actually taste it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You might generate an opinion, but until you actually taste that honey, you have no idea. You're just formulating speculations. You're formulating opinions. I can tell you about falling in love. I can tell you about what it felt like to talk to Faith for two and three hours a time at night at one, two o'clock in the morning. I can tell you what it was like to empty my tank of gas to drive and see her and drive back and not know how I'm going to get to work for the rest of the week. I can tell you what it's like to get butterflies in your stomach. Butterflies is even a symbol because you don't literally have butterflies flying around in your stomach. I can tell you what that feels like. I can tell you about smiling so much that your face hurts. I can tell you about what it's like and how they can make you so angry that no one else can even compare to how angry they can make you, but at the end of it, you just want to laugh and hug. I can tell you what it's like to hold the person that you love. But until you fall head over heels in love, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I can tell you what it's like to lose a parent, to lose someone. But until you experience loss, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I can tell you what it's like to hold a newborn baby in your arms for the first time. I can tell you that holding Asher for the first time because he was my firstborn that I got to hold. I can tell you about holding him for the first time and how he had never done anything right or wrong, but I loved him with every source of my being and I was ready to die for him right there, the moment that I held him. But until you experience that, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I like to hunt. And occasionally, I haven't done it in a while. I went once last year. But I can tell you what it's like to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning in West Virginia where there's snow on the ground and it's chilled and go out into the woods 
where there's just frost and there's no sound at all except for the leaves crackling under your feet, the slight breeze blowing. I can tell you what it's like to be completely alone with God and nature. And I can tell you what it's like to sit in a tree stand in anticipation of, of shooting a deer but not really caring if you shoot a deer or not because you just want to be alone. You just want that time with you and God. I can tell you what that feels like. But until you experience it, you have no idea. I mean, you can generate, okay, well, cold, this, that, and you can put ideas together in your explanation along with comparing and contrasting. But you have no idea what I'm actually saying until you experience it. And there's a reason I'm laboring this point. There's a reason I'm laboring this point. Because I can tell you what the presence of God is. I can explain it to you. I can explain to you how we've been in church services before where we were in a one room and it was probably the size of where these pillars go across that room shut in like that and that was the entire church there was a little bathroom in the back and how we had little kids running around the church and I can tell you about worshiping God and you know faith was talented but nobody else there was and I can tell you about everybody singing off key and for me completely uninclined musically to know when someone's off key it's pretty drastic it has to be pretty drastic for me to recognize that they're not singing on key but I can tell you about the weight of God filling that place to where kids two and three and four years old just stop running and just sit down on the floor completely quiet I can tell you about those experiences I can tell you about seeing Shekinah glory because I have and that's not bragging on me because I wasn't even the one leading the service. I was just there. I can tell you about experiencing the presence of God to where you can't even formulate words in prayer. You're just completely humbled by the overwhelming weight of His glory. Amen. I can tell you about when Faith and I first got married and I was in our apartment in Hidden Valley where the doors didn't meet the framework of the floor and so when in the winter we'd have snow blowing into the doors so we'd have to shove towels underneath how we couldn't keep I know down here everybody seems to fight the war against roaches because those big palmetto bugs or whatever they're called they seem to like overtake you no matter what you do I know that but I'm talking about where the people on apartments on each side of us they would they smoked and so our apartment no matter what we did it would the walls would leak and I can tell you about bugs crawling through our house. I can tell you about that was the type of apartment we lived in where our hot water heater was putting out methane, so we had to get a methane detector so it didn't poison us or the kids. Like I can tell you about all of that stuff that we lived in. And one day I went upstairs, and I can't sing worth a lick, but I put the music on and I was worshiping with God. And I can tell you about the weight of God becoming so intense that I was scared, and I begged God on the floor to stop. I sat on the floor and I said, God, please stop because if you don't, I'll die. Then I can tell you what that feels like, but until you get there, until you experience that, you have no idea. You can say, okay, that theoretically means this, but having a fear that just so overwhelms you that you can barely breathe, I can't, I can't make you feel that. I can't make you experience that. You don't fully understand until you experience. And the same is true with heaven. We can formulate ideas about it. We can say, oh, cities and streets of gold. And all the evangelists have got their shovels and their picks ready to dig up the streets of gold. I can, <laughs> I can tell you what heaven's like because of what the Bible tells me. But you don't know. And I don't know. Really and truthfully. I've been in the presence of God for a few moments. 
where it's restricted by my fallen nature, where it's restricted by my flesh that I still have on, and where it's restricted because He's there and I'm here. I can tell you about what His presence is like in the restricted sense that I've experienced it, in my limited experience. But imagine a place where the presence of God is so real and so full every second, where there's no moment in time where the full presence of God is not, where there's no darkness, where everything is just immense light, where everything is infinite value. There's no pain, there's no sadness, there's no boredom, there's no hurt, there's no affliction. All those things sound wonderful, but we don't know what that would feel like. Imagine what it would feel like to get up out of bed and not hurt. Imagine what it would feel like to never have to go to bed. Imagine what it would feel like to never be tired. Imagine what it would feel like to never have anyone betray you. To never have anyone walk away from you. Imagine what it would feel like to know you didn't have to go to church because you were continually in God's presence. And every day was church. Imagine what it would feel like where every person that interacted with you was interacting from a pure heart with generosity and kindness and love and had no ulterior motives. Where they weren't blessing you just so they could hold it over your head later. Where they weren't doing something for you so that you would have to do something for them. Where they weren't doing something for you just because it was the right thing to do, but they were doing it for you because they loved you. Because that was the only thing that was there. That was the supreme motivation was love all the time. That's what heaven's like. And we can imagine and speculate, but we don't really know. We cannot imagine, completely imagine a world with no crying, no tears, no death, no pain, no loss, no evil, no wickedness whatsoever. No doubt in yourself. No doubting where you're at, who you are, if you're really doing what God's called you to do, if you're really a Christian. No doubt whatsoever. Sounds wonderful. Because everybody doubts. Even people that have walked with God for years, even people that have experienced God's presence have days where they just second-guess themselves and say, am I really doing this right? Am I really a Christian? I mean, I pray, I read my Word, I, you know, I go to church, I give financially, you know, I do all the things, but am I really a Christian? Am I really... Everybody has those moments. The point of all of this point of all this that I'm painting is that heaven, our hope, the promise of God, is actually what's supposed to lead people to repentance. You know, I preach hell a lot. I preach repentance a lot. I preach holiness a lot. But the Word of God says in Romans 2.4, it says, know you not that the kindness of God leads to repentance. That it's actually the kindness and the goodness of God that is supposed to be used to lead men to repentance. The things that God does for those that He loves. The things that God does for His people. That should lead us to repentance. That should lead us every single day to know how good and how kind and how faithful of a Heavenly Father we have that we want 
to live our life for Him. That we don't want to do anything that would displease Him. That everything that we do should be in reciprocation of the things that He's done for us. That because we have such a good and a faithful and a loving and a kind Heavenly Father who promises good things to us and then backs up His promises. I mean, what kind of God looks at a people who are so depraved and who are so concerned about themselves that they sin and do everything that they can for themselves and decides not only am I not going to destroy them, but I'm also going to send my son as a substitution to save them from their sins and redeem them. And not only am I going to do that, but then I'm going to prepare an eternal dwelling place so that they can forever, for all of eternity, without end, be in my presence. And there was nothing about us that deserved him to do that. What kind of God does that? The answer a good God, a loving God, a merciful God, a God that is so good that His goodness should consume us. He's so kind that that kindness should consume us. And if we are really consumed by that, then we will be motivated by that. And I said at the beginning of this that I'm believing that 2020 is going to be a year of the harvest, that we're going to see people saved and we're going to see people baptized. And that's going to require some work on our part. But the thing about someone that is intensely passionate is you don't have to get them and you don't have to force them to talk about what they're passionate about. I can have a conversation with Dave and I don't have to force him to talk to me about the end times. I don't have to force him to talk to me about um, self-preservation and gardening and all of that because he's passionate about that. You wouldn't have to force a conversation out of Adam about mechanics because he enjoys that. You would have to force me to understand what he's saying because I'm just not there. I don't have to force Marty to talk about football. I wouldn't have to force Tom to talk about computers. I wouldn't have to force Jessica to talk about working out. People love to talk about the things that they're intensely passionate about. If you're intensely passionate about something, you want to talk about it. You want to share it. Because you enjoy it. You enjoy not only the thing that you're passionate about, but you enjoy talking about the thing that you're passionate about. Listen, I love theology. And I'm not talking about just the base level theology about the substitution. I'm talking about the deep stuff that nobody cares about, like the difference between homoousius and homoousius. Like, I love theology. But the point is, I don't just enjoy studying theology. I enjoy listening to other people talk about theology. I enjoy thinking about theology. Sometimes I enjoy thinking about talking to people about theology because I just like it that much. So if you really get in a conversation with me, you don't have to force talking about theology because I'll just talk about it. We don't have to force that because we're passionate about that. Intense passion automatically produces radical witness. So if we become intensely passionate about the kingdom of God, and we become intensely passionate about our Savior, and we become intentionally passionate about heaven and the kindness of our God who set heaven aside for us to internally dwell with Him, then we will automatically be a radical witness for the kingdom of God. It will be automatic. Because we're so in love with Jesus, the person, that we want to tell everybody about Jesus. When Faith and I first got together, everybody that knew how long I had been pining after her wanted me to shut up about how much I talked about us being together. And the same was true on her side. When you fall in love with somebody, you immediately, you talk to everybody. Everybody that you're with, you know, 
to my cr- shame, I said not, I almost said to my credit, it's not to my credit, to my shame, there was a small time period right after faith that I got together where we broke up and I thought that our relationship was done. Faith's sister asked me out. And me being stupid, hung out with her. Me being stupid, I said to my shame, me being stupid, I hung out with her. She went back to Faith and told Faith that she had a miserable day hanging out with me because the only thing that I could talk about the whole day was Faith. Because I was head over heels in love with Faith. And still to this day, if I'm around anyone for any length of time, I'm going to either be texting or calling or Marco Poloing or sharing with them something about faith because I am in love with my wife. If you're in love with somebody, that sharing that relationship is automatic. And if we are really and truly in love with Jesus, the sharing of that relationship should be just as automatic. And it should be produced out of our foresight of heaven and what awaits us. Because yes, we love Jesus amidst our sorrows. We love Jesus amidst our pain. We love Jesus amidst our struggles. And sometimes because we're here in the natural and we have so much pain and we have so much struggle and there's so much affliction and persecution and attack and everything on all sides and it looks so negative that we get all doom and gloom that we forget about heaven that's awaiting us. And the reason that having heaven in view all the time is so important is because if we don't, then it skews the kindness of God. We begin to filter God through the things that we see all day, every day, and we don't realize what He has planned in eternity for us. So we begin to filter God through this over-sovereignty reflection where everything bad God has ordained and cast that upon you. Whether He has or He's not is not the issue that I'm dealing with, but you think that that's it. That's all there is. Everything you're experiencing, all the bad, that that's God's will for you for Ever. That's it. And we forget that God set all of this up to draw you closer to Him and so that one day you might from then on out eternally be with Him in His presence where you have no more pain or no more struggles or no more persecution, no more afflictions, no more sadness, no more crying, no more hurting, no more dying, no more fears, no more regrets, no more worry because you are eternally in the presence of God. That's the end goal. And if we forget about the goodness and the kindness at the end goal, then our vision of God and how kind and good He really is is going to be skewed because we only look at Him through the filter that we see now. And if that makes sense, we look at God through my grandfather died. My grandmother died. My cousin hung himself. My my wife and I lost our first baby. We can't pay the bills this month. I'm not saying we can't pay the bills this month. I'm saying that we've been there where we couldn't pay the bills. We don't know what we're going to eat. We don't know how we're going to afford the super special formula that our daughter has to take. Etc., etc., etc. And we look at the bad, and we look at the bad, and we look at the bad. And so our mindset and our vision of God slowly starts to get skewed as to can He really be a good, good Father? Can He really be a good God? if all I see is bad. But you've got to think, and there's an illustration that I really like. I don't have a super long rope available where I would do it, but this guy, he takes this rope, and it's like 50 to 100 feet long, and he takes the rope, and he just puts the end off to the side, off the stage, under a doorway somewhere, and he puts a little piece of black tape, about an inch wide, on the end of the rope, and he holds it up, and he says, this black tape symbolizes your life. 
This rope symbolizes eternity. So you've got this small portion of your life that is bad or that is difficult, because it may not be bad, that is difficult, that is filled with tears and pain and struggle and death, etc., etc., etc. And then you've got all of eternity of goodness and kindness and blessing forevermore. But we get so caught up in the black tape and so consumed by what we see right now that our vision of God becomes skewed and we want to just cast in the towel altogether. We want to just say, I'm done. God can't be good because of look at what I'm dealing with. God can't be good because of look at who I've lost. God can't be good because look at the things that I've suffered. God can't be good because He's not paying my bills on time. God can't be good, etc., etc., etc. And so we look at all of these reasons why God cannot possibly be good because our life is so extremely difficult and we forget that God has literally designed everything so that we could have a relationship with Him for eternity. David says this, because some people would trade their eternal worth for a momentary happiness. People do it all the time. David says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. What he's actually saying is, because he begins that verse by saying, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. What he's saying is he's saying, if this is my last moment and this is all I have, then I'm in oblivion and I don't exist anymore. I'd rather be with you than to have a thousand extra days and be anywhere else. And he's saying, I would rather be a simple, humble, lowly doorkeeper in the house of God than to sit in the most prominent seat in the world. He would rather be poor and broken and miserable and be an usher in the church than to, be, to live on Wall Street, etc., etc., etc. To live in the Hamptons. To live, I don't know, where's that fancy place? Beverly Hills. I was fishing for it there. That he would rather live broken and dissolute and be in God's presence than to have everything that this world can give and be without God. And some of us can't say that. Some of us can't say that. If somebody walked up to you and said, your life if you don't recant the gospel. That's happened all the time. Somebody will come up, put a gun, Columbine is one of the famous instances. Gun to the girl's head. Say that Jesus doesn't exist or say that God is dead. She wouldn't do it so they killed her. Your life or the gospel. Some of us couldn't do that. Some of us couldn't turn down a million dollars to say that we're a Christian. You know, if you say that you're not a Christian, if you say that God doesn't exist, I'll give you a million dollars. If you deny God, I'll give you this money. Some of us couldn't do that. Because while we claim Christianity, we really secretly desire the world. Charles Spurgeon said that many people have feared God in a cottage, but would deny Him in a castle. Meaning that many people, because of their situation, because of their struggles, they cling to God and they hold fast to God. But if they had more, they wouldn't. And so maybe, just maybe, the reason that some of us have the struggles that we do is in order for us to call out to God and to cling to Him and to draw near to Him in lieu of what's coming, in lieu of the eternity with Him, in lieu of the glory of heaven, that we can't 
even fathom that they have to use symbolism, inadequate symbolism to describe the glory of heaven because human words can't possibly convey the reality of what heaven is. Maybe if we could get focused on what heaven is, then we would stop focusing on what the world is. Maybe if we could get eternity's values in view, then we would stop living for today and start living for forever. Now the whole point of all of this, and I've said that several times, is if we have that, that view, that vision, that passion, we're going to be radical witnesses. David cries out, and he says, this one thing have I asked of God, and this one thing that I desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and forever gaze upon the beauty of His holiness. That was David's consuming passion. And so you see all the time throughout his life, throughout his struggles, throughout his conversation, David always cast it back to God. Even when his son died, he got up and he ate and said it was the will of God. I'll see him again one day. Everything that David experienced, he filtered through the filter of God because he was passionately in love with God. God even named him the man after his own heart. David was passionate about God, so therefore David's conversation reflected that passion. This is the year of the harvest. So, if we can be consumed by God, our conversation will reflect it. If we're not consumed by God, then we're going to try to find that love and that hope and that joy anywhere and everywhere else. We're going to try to look to drugs, to drinking. We're going to try to look to ulterior relationships, to pornography. We're going to try to look at other people and their lives and compare our and contrast our lives to theirs. We're going to try to look at all of these different things and try to find the satisfaction and the completion that we need that's only available in God anywhere and everywhere else because we don't have eternity in view and we don't have a proper revelation of the kindness and the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't have that proper understanding. So everything else is going to be more important. Everything else is going to take precedence. We're going to look to money. We're going to play the lottery because we're trying to get the money because we think that the money will make us happy. We're going to fish for the things of this world. We're going to say, well, if I had the more money, if I had the better relationship, if I had more TV, I don't know what it is. If I had uh, just another drink, if I had just another joint, if I had just another pill, if I had this, if I had this, we're going to try and find something to fulfill the void in us. Augustine said that our hearts were created for God. So therefore, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. And that is my paraphrase of his actual quote. But the point is, is that because our hearts were made for that relationship with God, that the only way that our hearts are going to be satisfied is in Him. We have to have Him. Otherwise, we're never going to be satisfied. Otherwise, we're always going to be empty. Otherwise, we're always going to be striving. We're always going to be yearning. We're always going to have regret and longing and lust, and we're never going to have just satisfaction and joy. That joy that's unspeakable and full of glory that Peter talks about, that is only found in a satisfied relationship in Christ. Amen? Alright. I said that this was the year of the harvest. So finishing this out, if you want to, you can turn over here with me. It's Matthew chapter 9. It's verse 37. It's a familiar passage. It's actually verse 37 and thir- through 38. I'll give you just a moment to get there. 
Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, this is Jesus speaking, the harvest is plentiful, or if you got the King James, the harvest is white, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I don't usually title messages. If I had to title this one, I would call it Heaven in the Harvest because people have all these methods, and I've taught several of them on Sunday nights. We do evangelism training, and I've taught evangelism explosion, share Jesus without fear, the 5S method. Um, I've taught the difference between community evangelism and um, cold water evangelism, etc., etc., etc. We've taught all of those things. And we everybody has a different method or a different approach, but seldom do we actually just talk about the motivation for evangelism. And some people say that we should evangelize because the Bible tells us to evangelize, and that's true. We should evangelize because the Bible tells us to evangelize. But if we really were in love with Jesus, and I've said this once already, then that love would produce evangelism automatically. The harvest is plentiful. What Jesus is saying is there are numerous people out there that have no idea about the kingdom of God. And don't think just because there's a bunch of churches people know. I've told this story several times, but we went out evangelizing a friend and I one time into a church or a community that had 32 to 37,000 people in the community and it had 90-something churches. That's a lot of churches for that small of a community. And we met this boy. And literally, to you would walk from one church parking lot to another. There would be five or six churches on the same street. But we met this boy when we were out evangelizing, and we started telling him the gospel. And he had never heard of Jesus. Now, in a community of less than 37,000 people and over 90 churches, that's an indictment to every church in that community. That someone could be in a, that community with that many churches, and the churches not have any remote form of outreach that people could actually hear the gospel. So that this boy in high school didn't know who Jesus was. And even more of an indictment was when we shared the gospel with his best friend. His best friend was a member of a youth group in church. Even more of an indictment is the boy in the youth group wasn't motivated enough about his church and his youth group to share and invite his best friend to that youth group or to that church. There's something seriously wrong there. And I think the supreme issue is that people just don't have a love of the gospel anymore. And I'm not talking about you guys. I'm, not ta I'm, not, I'm just talking as a big picture. I don't want to beat up on everybody and say, you don't love Jesus, you don't love Jesus. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is because we are barely making it ourselves, or we have that mindset, like that we are barely making it from day to day to day, that we're just struggling and we're just limping through, that because we've got that limping through mindset, that we don't think about eternity. Because if we could truly look at the people that we worked with, the people that we, for people that go to college or school, just to use this picture, the people that we went to school with or still go to school with or college with or whatever, the people that we see in Walmart, the people that we go out to lunch with, our friends, our family, and you could look at them and you could say heaven or hell to every person that you looked at. Not only should that be a motivation for your love for them, but then look at it from Jesus' perspective. Somebody that He died for might be lost. Somebody that God loves might be lost to eternal punishment. If we had a love for God, 
I can only imagine, and I can think back to when we lost our first daughter and how it impacted faith, the pain that she felt and the depression that followed from losing our first daughter. I think I talked about this last week a little bit. God calls us His children. And so that pain has to impact God. It talks about the Spirit being grieved and the Spirit being hurt and the Spirit being hindered and the Spirit being stopped throughout Scripture. But think about the pain of losing a child. But then think about the pain of a child going to hell for all of eternity. That's rough. Knowing that the other option was eternal bliss. That's rough. So the reason that I put these two together, heaven and the harvest, is not to threaten everybody saying people are going to hell, though they are. But Jesus is saying the harvest is plentiful, meaning that there's all these people out there that are destined and on their way to hell that are literally walking towards hell every moment of their life because they're not promised the next minute, much less the next day. So they're all like in this factory streamline walking in a line straight towards hell. And we have the opportunity as ministers of the gospel because not just the person that stands behind this pulpit is a minister. Every Christian is a minister. We have the ability to go to them and to share the gospel with them. Now what they do with it, that's their own issue. But if we don't tell them, then that becomes our issue. And if we truly loved God and were motivated and consumed by that love, then it would be natural that we wanted to share that. Now remember, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be authentic. And I've said that time and time again. Just be real. It doesn't matter if you know all the necessary steps for salvation or if you know all the words to say or if you know how to do the things that might be required to lead someone to the Lord. Just share the gospel with them and stumble through it with them. Be authentic. Be real and love people. Love God and love people. Amen? All right. Here's what we're going to do. We are going...